0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Kino, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's Tuesday, October the 11th, 2022. Tuesday might be the most miserable day of the week, although maybe (laughs) Monday qualifies as that. We've certainly been having some... Um, some, dis- some distinctly miserable shows on Keen On recently. We had Lynn Melnick on the show, who has a new book out telling us what Dolly Parton can teach us about the trauma of drug addiction and sexual violence. The book is called I Had to Think Up a Way to Survive. That was pretty miserable. Mm-hmm. Uh, then a couple of days ago, I had the MIT philosopher Kieran Satir on telling us how uh, life is hard and how philosophy can help us make our way. His book is called Life is Hard. Um, And even the more positive people we've had recently, like Melissa Urban, um, who has a new book out, The Book of Boundaries. Here we have her smiling. I don't think she really smiles. She seems pretty miserable too. But I'm thrilled to tell you that today we're doing a really miserable show with a particularly miserable book. And Author, um, Nora McInerney is the author of a new book called Bad Vibes Only and Other Things I Bring to the Table. She's a very successful author, and before by by, by Bad Vibes Only, she was the author of The Appropriately Called No Happy Endings on her website. Um, she says at one point, Hi, I'm Nora, and we've got Nora talking to us from Los Angeles today. Hi, Nora. Tell us who you are. Who is this Nora McInerney?
1: I am pretty much uh, exactly who you described me to be, a pretty bad time. I am an (laughs) author uh, of what I would consider several funny books about sad things, and I'm the host of the podcast Terrible Thanks for Asking, where I talk to people about their (laughs) hardest life experience and what they learned what they what they didn't learn what yeah. the long right. of it I'd is so uh,
0: i'd be a much more popular show <laughs> terrible thanks for asking i think i'm going to change it keen on is way too positive
1: it's very it, it's it's good wordplay though it's you know your name means yeah you know, like something like but you've certainly
0: uh nora you've you've caught the zeitgeist, your, um, your ted talk uh we don't move on from grief we move forward from it has got almost six and a half million views do you feel that your and i don't want to say shtick your discourse your ideas your books your podcast have somehow caught today's zeitgeist
1: i mean i would hope so i would hope so but i think You know, it's, I don't know if if I would call it a zeitgeist. I think it's just a realization of what we have all always known, which is that life is wonderful. It is so amazing. It is so fantastic. It is so unbelievable. And it is so, so difficult. And if the last few years of sort of drinking from a fire hose of our collective suffering didn't sort of bring that into our broader consciousness, I don't know what would, but um, you know, I didn't invent this. This is just uh, this is just a, a fact of life, and it's also something that you know. I'm American. I was raised in America. It is kind of antithetical to our American way of being. We love a winner. We love somebody who can pull themselves up by their bootstraps. We love a very succinct success story. And I don't know many people who have actually um, lived one.
0: We love wellness, but according to another guest we had recently, Rena Raphael, uh, wellness is itself a scam. She has a new book out, "The Gospel of Wellness."
1: I'm excited uh, about
0: that one. Yeah, have you read it?
1: No, it's on my list. Uh, yes, yeah, I'm writing it down list. to it's remind me. Um, but um, Nora.
0: We live, of course, in the age of COVID We're imminent recession, war in Ukraine and so on and so forth. But your life, and this is a serious question, I'm not trying to mock in any way. I mean, your life has been unusually difficult. Perhaps you might tell our audience in brief about what you've experienced in your life, which is unusual in terms of the grief and the bad luck.
1: Yeah, I would, you know. I would say it's unusual, except that I know it's extremely, extremely common, and if not the details, then the uh, the feeling of it. So I actually had a very good, very normal, I mean, abnormally normal life, abnormally good life. Nothing bad happened, and then I fell in love, and he was diagnosed with brain cancer, and we got married, and we had a kid, his name was Aaron, and he died three Mm -hmm. years after our wedding day and he died right after my dad died and my dad died right after I miscarried my second child. So, you know, if you live long enough to care about other people, you will experience grief and you will experience loss. And what I've learned in my almost seven years of making the podcast that I make, where I speak to people about the hard things that they have gone through in life, I realized, you know, um, I'm really not special. There's nothing special specifically about my story. Everybody goes through something or many, many somethings in life.
0: Yeah, but not everybody goes through what you've gone through. I've never met anyone who's lost a, a, a sibling, a child, a parent, all in the same you know mm-hmm. year or two. Uh, in, in the conversation with Kieran uh, Satya, who is a philosopher, we talked about the idea of making one's own luck Um, Machiavelli, uh, had the famous phrase, fortune favors the brave. What do you make of good and bad luck? Do we get what we deserve? Is everything arbitrary?
1: Uh, no, we don't get what we deserve. Uh, we don't get what we deserve. I, I think it's easy to think that when life is going well, right? Like, oh, I deserve this. I've worked so hard, but, um, my husband didn't deserve brain cancer. I think once you experience the flip side of that coin, that whole philosophy falls apart really quick. I'm staying here in a beautiful hotel and I'm in downtown Los Angeles where right outside my door, there are people who don't have homes and are you know, sleeping in tents or just directly out on the street. And there's nothing that I've done to inherently earn this life while they live like that.
0: You're from, a, uh, you're from Minneapolis. You come from mm-hmm. an Irish, Irish Catholic family. Um, this experience of grief and of bad and good luck as generally in, in, in historic terms and as, as a species has been made sense of in religion. Do you see yourself mm-hmm. as a kind of post-religious thinker, writer, performer? Is religion important to you? Too?
1: I don't know. I mean, obviously, if I have to say, I don't know, it's not important to me, Um, but there's something I still I feel like being raised Catholic and having that as sort of a foundational way of looking at the world has offered me comfort, even if it is not. A part of my life, it is just not a part of my life, and that is not where I turned. when this happened. It just isn't, it just isn't. But I also, I, I'm envious of people who have a deep faith. I'm very envious of them. I don't want to be considered a post-religious thinker or, you know, uh, a speaker. I, I think that faith has been really, really helpful and a beautiful experience for a lot of people. I just cannot feel it.
0: What do you think's gone wrong? I, I, I mean, it hasn't gone completely wrong with religion because there's still many religious people, particularly in America. But is there something missing as is, is religious is, as religion missed the beat, missed the moment?
1: I think that when religion and politics become so intertwined, then it's less about love and belonging and support and more about who's in and who's out. And when you're really focused on who's out, which it feels like a lot of, you know, Christian-based faith systems are, um, that's that's a really fearful form of belonging. If you are afraid that you could lose your standing because of, you know, who you are you know, uh, that's a, that's a tough place to believe that you are loved and welcome. If you also know that you are, um, you know, I don't know, uh, gay, if you're like, there's so many, there's so many, uh, there's so many ways, or, you know, if you, if you step outside of whatever is considered acceptable in your, um, in your religious community, whatever that may be, it's, hard to feel like you could belong if something about you could make you not belong that suddenly.
0: Yeah, I think this idea, I think you're onto something there. Uh, We've had some people on the show talking about how the problem in America is that religion has been turned upside down. Everyone thinks of politics in religious terms, or the, the, um, the values, the passion of religion has been imported, incorporated into politics. And that explains the sp- the spiritual vacuum elsewhere and it also explains how corrupt and rotten politics is. Do you think of yourself in any way as a political writer, thinker, or you sidestep most of that stuff?
1: I don't sidestep it. I certainly don't think I'm uh, I have like the basic level of intelligence to really uh, deep dive into any of the topics, but I think that, if you are a compassionate person, if you are a deeply feeling person, it is impossible for politics to not show up in the things that you create. And so they certainly show up in the show that I make. They show up in the, the writing that I do. Um, but I would not consider myself like a thought leader. I've thought thoughts before, but um, not the smartest bulb in the room politically, I'll tell you that much.
0: Well, I, I wouldn't necessarily put it in that in those terms. And actually, when you're talking it, what you've been through is is probably not entirely foreign to Joe Biden. I, oh, I wonder yeah. what you think of how he, in his life, has responded to all the grief that he's experienced.
1: Oh, I think that loss can either break you down completely and shut you off from the world, or it can make you so much more open to the world around you. And I do not align with Joe Biden on everything politically, but I think that he is an example of the best effects of grief. And I truly admire the way that he has supported his family through such an immense loss, the way that he It opens up his heart to other people who are grieving and experiencing similar kinds of loss or any kind of loss. If you can tell that he is a person who has been shaped deeply by loss. And when you are that kind of person and he works in politics, but I will to go back to your first question, are you political? No matter what happens to you in life, um, in America, like politics are involved. So my husband died of brain cancer. And um, we were broke when he died, because it's very expensive to be sick in America. He worked until the day he died. I worked through his sickness. um, And when he died, I got three days of bereavement leave. So you know, like, and then it's just like, get back to work, get back to work. I don't think people consider that a political issue. But uh, we don't have paid maternity leave here. We don't have uh, any sort of bereavement leave. So when you realize that everybody experiences grief, but only some people get to grieve and get time and space to heal, even that is political.
0: Yeah, and the the role of the state in recognizing grief, I think you're absolutely right. That's what distinguishes America from the rest of the world. I don't want to turn this into another boring conversation about Donald Trump, but he's certainly someone who's channeled grief in a very different way. When you think of the death of his brother and the way he responded in terms of his relationship with his father, his brother sounds as if in some ways his alcoholism and early death was a consequence of being bullied by his father. Do you think that men like Trump in their unwillingness to acknowledge grief, um, a part of the problem?
1: I don't think it's a necessarily a male problem. I think it's a cultural problem. And it's one that affects men negatively. If you are raised to believe that, um, you know, you're supposed to buck up and you can't cry and you're supposed to just like power through it, man up. Like, what does that do to a person? What does that do to a child, a boy to be told that the only way to be a man is to not have feelings, is to not feel the sorrow that you are actually experiencing. It's uh, really sad to think about.
0: Yeah, we had the Brookings scholar, Richard Reeves, on the show uh, last week. He has a new book out, uh, Of Boys and Men, talking about the cultural, political, economic crisis of men and boys in, in our culture. Do you think that's one of the reasons why men and boys are, and again, one has to generalize here, not all men and boys, but many men and boys are doing so badly uh, and that women are more successful, more uh, successful certainly in adapting to the current economic and cultural environment.
1: Are women thriving right now? Well, some, more than men,
0: uh, nobody's thriving.
1: You think women are thriving more than men? That would be news to me. Well, that would be maybe news my, to
0: me. Maybe, let me. Let me rephrase yeah. it. Maybe in our grief laden age, maybe women are more able to make sense of our times. Do you, do you see a big difference between you you? You have a, a significant following, you're on a 20 tour, uh, a 20 city tour of America. Do you have more female or male fans, or is it sort of Oh, I,
1: I would say 90% female, 90% female. Um, I mean, just from like, you know, in a, I think I was in a theater, 400 people yesterday. And I think there were 10 men. So
0: and are, they maybe all in, uh, are they all sitting at the front or at the maybe back? They're all the somebody's
1: street? plus one. Somebody brought them there. And that's not because men have fewer feelings, but they are given fewer places to express them safely i would say and i am raising three sons and it's important to me that they know that like they are also deeply emotional people and that is okay and that they have the same amount of you know space and resources to process their feelings as anyone else in our family but um i don't know if women are better at it or if we are also conditioned to take care of the feelings that the men around us um, are feeling and not addressing properly or not processing. And if we're just better at um, pretending that we're doing well.
0: You have three boys and you also have five books. Um, Three boys, five books, baby. Yeah, it's quite an achievement. Um, As I said, uh, there's the no vibes, no happy endings. Oh, uh, uh, it's okay to laugh. The Hot Young Widows Club, which is brilliantly titled, and Bad Mm -hmm. Moms. Tell me about this new book, um, uh, Nora. Bad, not Vi, uh, Bad (laughs) Vibes Only and Other Things I Bring to the Table. What are you, it's a series of essays. What are you trying to do or what are you saying in this book that you haven't said before that's different? Yeah,
1: this book is not about my husband dying. This book is not about my husband dying. This is about all of the, not all of, but many of the other foundational situations that gave me bad vibes long before I met that man, long before he was sick, long, uh, long before he died. It is a response to this aggressively optimistic culture. And I talk about the, um, the complicated constantly contradictory nature of our modern existence where we are trying to raise children to be kind and thoughtful and not obsessed with their screens while well, we're also staring at our screens the way that i am you know was raised to be a feminist and also care very deeply about how i look <laughs> um the the absolute jarring realization that it has been 20 years since I graduated high school and I am no longer uh, of the age where I would be an ingenue. I am now definitely a middle-aged mom. So it is uh, a collection of essays and personal stories uh, about modern life, about modern life.
0: And about modern Nora. I mean, you couldn't have written this 20 years ago.
1: No, I definitely could not have. I definitely could not have. But I would also say that these different versions of myself um, show up in the book as well.
0: I mean, and as I said at the beginning on your website, you say, hi, I'm Nora. What does the Nora of 2022 know that the Nora of 2002 didn't know?
1: Oh, my God. Uh, How to pay taxes. Um, (laughs) Mm. So like you're you're literally not taught how to be an adult. You just get pushed out into the world, and the should first should we be taught I,
0: that kind of thing? Should there be classes at school on how? To uh, pay
1: someone's got to teach you. I don't know. I think it would have been nice to learn in school. I definitely didn't learn it from my parents. Got my first like big girl paycheck and was like, wait, what? Like, mm. but I have to, and I have to pay taxes after you already took all the money out. And and your your the father paycheck. wasn't around to help on? you, right? Yeah. Yeah, no, he died later. He died later. He right. died recently, not recently, but eight years ago. So I was in my, I was 30 when he died. And uh, I, yeah, I had to, I, you have to learn how to be an adult. And what I did not know in 2002 is that life is going to be so much harder than I ever expected it to be. And so much better, not like in spite of, or because of the hard things, but with them, like it's all connected. I had no idea.
0: You talk about screens. You're quite active, like all of us on um, on on social media. You have thirty thousand followers on uh, on Twitter, more than fifty. I quit 000.
1: Twitter, so I have no idea okay. what those thirty thousand. Well, I haven't tweeted have thirty
0: thousand. Yeah. I don't blame you I, quitting. <laughs> you got over fifty thousand on on Facebook. How do you think social media, which is so dominant, especially for younger people, how, how is this? impacting our our experience in, in, in this dark world that you write about.
1: Yeah. In so many ways, it has been wonderful. You can connect with people all over the world. At my show last night, there were two women who had met on the Internet in, like, the year 2000, before social media existed. And these are best friends. They've been best friends for over 20 years because of the internet but that was a different kind of internet that was a different kind of internet and it was not so much a strange performance of what a life is where each of us myself included is essentially producing directing and starring in a reality show of our own creation that is weird that is weird and i do not know a whole lot of adults who feel better about themselves or the world when they spend a lot of time on their phones. And if we have fully developed prefrontal cortexes and we don't feel better, I can only imagine what it does to a child or a teenager. And I am very interested in the longitudinal studies, but I do think in general, um, it's a net negative, I do. How are you gonna, uh, how old are you boys? uh they are one is we have a blended family 21 we have a 16 year old girl um a nine-year-old boy and a five-year-old boy
0: and and do you have policies on social media you're going to discourage them from Mm -hmm. using screens
1: yeah the older the oldest one has never posted a thing uh drives the girls wild they can't find him uh and the 16 year old does not have social media uh, she can get social media when she's 18. That is her prerogative. And the rest of them uh, will also not have it until, the th- until they are 18.
0: You wrote something uh, entitled, uh, So You Want to Do Something Meaningful with Your Life. A couple of questions mm-hmm. connected with that. Um, do you think all your writing and, and, and books like uh, Bad Vibes Only, is, is that what the real meaning in your life is? Is that what you've achieved?
1: No, I mean, yes and no. I think whatever I would have done, and the point of that essay is whatever you are doing is meaningful. It is not about these, you know, huge, you know, whatever big accomplishment that you have on the horizon, which before I was a real writer, as I would have put it, I was working in advertising. And the meaningful thing that I was aiming for was like an award to tell me that I was a good advertiser, that I was good at writing ads that people were trying to like click through to get to like what they really wanted. And, uh, my dad also wrote advertising copy, uh, for a career. And I remember saying something when I was in college studying, you know, like taking my first philosophy class about how I didn't think I could do that because it wasn't meaningful. And he said to me, I didn't realize that taking care of my family wasn't meaningful. And, uh, There are a lot of ways to have a meaningful life. I've found meaning in my work, and I've also found meaning in my children, my dogs, uh, my friends, strangers that I make eye contact with and strike up conversations with when I'm out on a walk. There are many, many paths and conduits to a meaningful life. And if anything, I've learned that like seeking a big accomplishment as a source of meaning, has always left me feeling empty. My book is out today. And if the only thing that had meaning about it was that I wrote the book or that the book is out, the book is out, like um, that would feel so empty. That feels so much more different than knowing like, okay, I wrote this thing and somebody's going to find it and they're, it's going to find the right person and they will connect with it. But I've felt that from writing that that essay that I wrote for free on the internet, and I found that in many other places too. There's
0: a new book out about Anthony Bourdain that's quite controversial, in which he makes it clear that he, he, he in some ways, he hated his followers. He hated being associated with them. It seems like Bourdain is a or was a very contemporary figure in that he gave his followers meaning. How do you, how do mm-hmm. you feel when? you know, you you're, you're doing this 20 city tour you're very popular your the theaters are full of your followers are you comfortable with giving other people meaning
1: i don't know that i give people meaning i think that people most of my work is sharing someone else's story And people find meaning in seeing themselves and finding connection in another person's story. And sometimes that might be my story. My books are always about me, but the podcast that I make is really just an avenue for other people to share what happened to them. And I think when you read about another person, when you hear another person's story and you find that meaning, it's really like a reflection on your own experience that gives you that sense of meaning more than, you know, my specific book chapter or like this specific podcast episode. It's a mirror for your own experience.
0: I mean, I think what Baudin meant is that he was always uncomfortable with people coming up to him in the street or in restaurants and feeling like they really knew him. They felt intimate Mm -hmm. because of all his TV shows and his books yeah. and his ubiquity. Do you sometimes feel that when people come up to you, complete strangers, and they feel intimate that they know you inside out?
1: Well, I think you might be overestimating my popularity.
0: <laughs> well, let me let, give, give me that indulgence, Nora. I couldn't find that today, and he wasn't available, so I got you couldn't
1: find it. him. You couldn't, you couldn't book that. Oh God! I mean, there have been uncomfortable moments, but I think mostly I feel. Um, mostly I feel very honored to have a space in someone's life. If somebody is spending time with something that you worked on in any way to know, like they're listening to my show when they're in their life, you know, like they're doing their dishes, they're walking their dog, they're like driving to work. And that's such a, it doesn't surprise me that somebody would feel like a connection there. Um, at all i haven't had very many uncomfortable I- encounters but like i've had a couple uncomfortable ones um i've had a couple i've had a couple
0: a couple more questions um i mentioned the Lin the lynn melnick book on dolly parton uh, is there another cultural figure a writer musician artist someone who somehow for you captures stuff and cheers you up or makes you more miserable, but gives you meaning? Oh,
1: yes. Yes. There's a few. One is Taylor Swift. One is Taylor Swift um, who I think just has always done such a good job at synthesizing the, especially just like the female experience and, and her later work is obviously more universal, but there's something that she just innately can capture about just the uh, the melancholy and the longing of being a young girl. I love, love, love George Harrison and the all things must pass album. That mm. was like, uh, um,
0: did you see the, uh, the recent documentary?
1: I have not. No,
0: I yeah, have not. Because Harrison is presented and I think you'd find this really interesting. Harrison is presented as an incredibly vulnerable, brittle individual.
1: I believe that. Which I I, personally
0: wasn't crazy about, but I think you would you would take it in a much more positive way. He was so insecure around John Lennon and Paul McCartney.
1: Yeah. Oh, that's so sad because he was so good. He was so good. And he's the cutest one, in my opinion. Okay.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So Harrison and uh, and Taylor Swift. uh, And Bright Eyes,
1: Connor Oberst. Who? Connor Oberst, Bright Eyes, just the the king of the sad boys, the king of the skinny sad boys.
0: Finally, uh, Nora, we are coming up to cheerful month, Thanksgiving. Mm. You wrote something a couple of years ago. You don't have to fake it through Thanksgiving. What advice would you give people now as we approach Thanksgiving and Christmas and the holidays at a time of darkness, post-COVID, the imminent economic crisis, the environment, so on and so forth?
1: Yeah, that you don't have to do. Uh, that's all optional. It's all optional. We made it all up and you are allowed to make up new things and new traditions. And I still don't like Thanksgiving. And guess what? No one in my blended family does either. And so we don't really do it. We just do something else. Like none of us really like the food. It it, it always comes like right around Aaron's death anniversary. We just opted out. We just Opt it out. You can make new traditions that are more aligned with who you are now or how you are now or whatever your values are. And especially for Christmas, gifts are so fraught. And I really do have very like strong sort of boundaries around the way that we do gift giving in our family. And um, I just don't apologize for it.
0: <laughs> Should we have and a that's vibe something I wouldn't have done 20 years sh- ago. Should we have a bad
1: vibe day where we celebrate we bad vibes? I think we should. I think we should. A Everyone day, can just Nora. get all their worst vibes out. I'm writing that down. That's a good idea. Okay.
0: Could it be a Tuesday? What day of the week?
1: I feel like it's it, that, that feels like a Tuesday kind of thing to me. Tuesday yeah, is such a. Maybe we can
0: make it um, October the 11th. Why not?
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: That's your vibe. I gave you the idea. So credit me with I'm it, but it. can be writing
1: you. it down. I really will.
0: Okay, October the 11th, we can turn it into a public holiday, no one works, and we'll have a nice, and not such a nice, a a not nice, bad vibe day. Well, it's a real pleasure and honor to talk to you, Nora. Uh, I think you are as remarkable in person as as you are on the page, and as a performer. Uh, Your new book, Bad Bad Vibes Only, is just out, you're on tour, I urge people to catch you if they can, go to your website and find out where you're at. What else are you reading these days, Nora, what other books?
1: Oh, I'm I'm reading only fiction right now. And I just finished um, Emma Straub's This Time Tomorrow. And Mm. it's so beautiful, so beautiful. If you are in the Dead Dad Club, um, I think you'll really love this. And it's also written from the, okay, a 40-year-old woman falls asleep on her 40th birthday and wakes up in her 16-year-old body. And it Mm. is the most heartfelt, just wrenching time travel in a good way that I've ever read. I just absolutely loved it and did not want it to end.